Okay, we'll go ahead and get started. Good afternoon. Welcome to today's activity. There is no commercial support and the speakers and planners have um, disclosed no relevant financial relationships. You will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity. If you're viewing online, the evaluation link will be listed on the last slide of the presentation. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Nick Papa. He is a, one of our third year internal medicine um, residents. His interests include hiking, movies, traveling, and personalized medicine. Join me in welcoming Dr. Thapa. Uh, thank you for that introduction. Uh, as Jennifer mentioned, I'm one of the third year internal medicine residents here at Northeast Georgia Medical Center. Uh, today's topic for Grand Rounds will be titled The Fountain of Youth in pill form. Uh, kind of an interesting title, just to grab your attention there. Uh, wouldn't it be great if we could just get rid of all of our New Year's resolutions, ditch the gym, stop our diets, and just take a pill to extend our life? Well, that's what we'll try to delve in today, and hopefully by the end of the presentation, we'll be able to answer some of that. Uh, again, uh, I have no disclosures uh, to uh, announce, and if I did, uh, clearly they're not paying enough. Uh, objectives for today's talks, a uh, couple of objectives here again, to review metformin and its various pathways and understand the current data surrounding its use as an anti-aging drug, and then to help guide future practice in therapy based on the current evidence regarding both metformin and other possible life-extending medications and practices. Uh, this is a pretty big comprehensive topic. It's a new emerging field of research. Uh, so it may not be uh, atypical if you leave after today's talk with more questions than you have answers, but I'll do my best to kind of give you a brief overview. Uh, so first we'll go into the background. We'll talk about aging in general, its various definitions, how we define aging. Uh, we'll talk about life expectancy, the current trends in our life expectancy, both worldwide and in the US. And then we'll delve into longevity, uh, longevity medicine as a field of research, as an evolving field. And then we'll talk in more depth with uh, our main topic of metformin, uh, which I'm sure many of us are very familiar with. We'll go over current research. We'll discuss uh, where that research is headed and we'll kind of talk about where uh, we go from here. So just to start off, aging in general is defined as a process obviously of becoming older and it represents an accumulation of changes in a person over time. Uh, so this includes kind of this multi-dimensional process of both physical, psychological, and social changes. Uh, there's not always just one definition, it's kind of an encompassing uh, term. And uh, it's further divided into different stages uh, as defined by gerontologists or those who study aging. So there's of course, 65 and older is what we typically consider as elderly, but we can further subdivide that into the young old, which would be 65 to 74, the middle old, which we comprise of 75 to 84, and then the old old, or those 85 years and older. And so again, functionally, we can kind of de describe aging as the decline or deterioration of physiological changes with age. Um, thereby leading to the increased probability of death. Um, scientifically, we can say that it's a failure or 
the inability of cells to maintain the full functional capacity leading to irreversible changes uh, in the organism that basically leads to this, again, diminished ability to cope with the stressors of the environment. Uh, so bottom line, there's basically a disruption in homeostasis and there's a decreased ability to adapt and propagate further. Uh, here we have a couple of more aging definitions. Uh, in the classic sense, you can consider chronological aging, which is the number of years a person has lived. Uh, typically, this isn't very helpful. Uh, you know, you could say someone's 25 years old, someone's 40 years old. So you may have a preconceived notion, maybe 25 year old is a resident, the 40 year old is an attending, but this doesn't really tell you much about physical fitness or, and it's not an accurate predictor of their physical conditioning. Uh, otherwise, you can talk about aging in the biological definition, and this is describing the developmental stages based on biomarkers. Uh, so the big one that we can think of for this is uh, going from puberty to adulthood with the increase of sex hormones. But of course, there's other more complicated definitions of biological aging. Uh, they exist based on myelination events or degradation of certain tissues. So there's even within the biological definition, other terms. Uh, you can also have psychological aging, and this is the subjective aging based on one's experiences. So this includes experience, logic, emotions. Uh, if you think back to psychology and sociology, you'll remember Freud or Erickson's stages of development, and that's kind of the psychological staging, stages of aging. And then of course you can have functional aging, which is a more comprehensive and complex look at aging. It encompasses the psychological, the biological, chronological, physical, but it's more intensive, more time consuming to characterize. So many studies or many papers when talking about aging uh, will have a harder time to characterize through functional aging. And of course, you can look at the aging of a population uh, simply by measurement of the number and proportion of the elderly. And of course, this is uh, influenced by changes in life expectancy, uh, immigration or migration, decreased death rates and decreased birth rates. And so when we talk of, think about uh, process of aging, we can kind of categorize it in different terms. We can think of benign processes or benign changes of aging. So think back to medical school or even residency, how many of us are getting gray hairs or losing hairs? You know, these are very superficial, very benign. Uh, but then gerontologists like to also describe senescence or the non-benign changes. And these are the more concrete, more objective uh, markers of aging. Uh, usually functional deficits, they are manifested as progressive deterioration of our body systems, of our organs. Uh, when you have patients telling you they got creaky joints, aches and pains, hey doc, I'm not able to go golfing as well as I used to. You know, we start to think more of this more concrete definition of senescence. And again, this is kind of describing the inability to maintain homeostasis under those physiological stresses. Um, and so we get a loss of organ reserves resulting in a decreased response to our environment. And of course, aging is highly individualized and variable. Uh, everyone ages at a different rate amongst organisms, definitely, but even amongst the species, even person to person based on family genetics and environmental factors. So here we just have a cartoon of someone who's gracefully aging, 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 and then they hit uh, 
pivotal moment in their life and uh, they kind of flip the switch. And so we have multiple theories of aging, just like we do with definitions. Um, so we'll just go through a brief overview here. We have the program theory, which is kind of this genetic theory. Um, but again, this kind of looks at the theory that genetically programmed events are causing cellular damage that accelerate aging of the organism. So basically we hit milestones in our cellular lifespans that progress us through aging. Then we also have the error theory. This is more of an environmental theory. Uh, this is looking at random events, uh, mainly through extrinsic or environmental means causing cellular damage that accumulate as or an organism ages. We can also look at the immunological or autoimmune theory, uh, which describes aging as a function of loss of immune function as we age, such as the diminishing of the thymus and impaired immunological function. We also have things such as the cross-linking theory, the wear and tear theory, which looks at uh, basically effects of stress and structural and chemical changes causing irreversible damage. A uh, more popular one that we may have heard or been familiar with is the free radical theory, uh, which is looking at kind of the unpaired electrons, which cause damage by linking with tissue, causing irreversible damage of DNA, RNA, enzymes, and this is where we start talking about things such as antioxidants. And then there's also this uh, concept of the Hayflick limit, which basically posits that the cells will divide and reproduce a limited number of times until uh, there's a genetic program to have a limit to basically decrease the likelihood of further decline as we accumulate um, basically detrimental um, effects. And so, of course, we've all learned about the telomere hypothesis, this notion that we have shortening of the DNA with each replication. And so we have telomeres on the end of that to help prevent against degradation of those key coding sequences. And then, of course, there's other theories, like we said, psychological and social theories, such as the disengagement theory, uh, very popular in the social, psychosocial realm, uh, basically states that as we age, we start to remove ourselves from our social circles. We start reducing our social interactions in preparation for a death. Uh, basically the idea that as we age, we understand that our role diminishes and we're letting the next generation take over. And so I just like this quote here, our process of becoming older is a process that is genetically determined and environmentally modulated. Because again, there's not just one theory that encapsulates aging but it's more of a general uh, combination of many theories and probably a good factor of those contributing to aging. And so just some general trends in aging that we've seen, uh, obvious ones being that we have a significant increase in longevity. Uh, this is both in part due to improvement in public health, as well as improvement of infectious disease processes. And otherwise, we still see the major causes of mortality and morbidity, including heart disease, cancer, stroke. And as a result of our advances, we've seen death rates declining in the elderly. And so really, when we see that we have an aging population, we're living longer, the shift changes from a discussion of can we live longer to can we live healthier, can we live better? And so that's where this uh, discussion of health span versus lifespan comes in. Uh, we start to care more about the quality of life rather than the quantity of life. 
Uh, you know, how much longer can I keep playing pickleball with my friends every Sunday? How much longer can I still set up to watch the game in the chair? And so we'll talk a little bit about life expectancy and trends in life expectancy. Um, in the general sense, of course, life expectancy is the average number of years a newborn is expected to live at the current mortality rates if they were presumed to be constant for that uh, newborn's lifespan. And so I like to divide that mainly into external and internal determinants, kind of the classic dichotomy of nature versus nurture. Um, so external determinants, big ones, of course, is your SES, uh, your literacy, your education. Of course, though, also you have the medical abilities of where you live. So this plays into themes of both equity and effectiveness, um, health expenditure as a marker of GDP. And then of course, te technological capabilities. And then of course, uh, political conflicts, wars, civic unrest. And then we have the internal determinants, which we think of as of course, your genetics, uh, your baseline fitness or functional capacity, and then also kind of the disease prevalence in uh, your life. And so just as a general trend in world life uh, or worldwide life expectancy, um, this is kind of taken online from our world and data. And so you can see the big trend that we see is after the 1800s, 1900s, uh, after the industrial revolution, after we start mass producing uh, both products, goods and increased hygiene, we almost double our life expectancy. So now you see that the average life expectancy is about 70.5 years worldwide. Um, and if you were just born 100, 200 years ago, you'd probably be going through your midlife crisis right now. Uh, so here we just have a little cartoon about uh, average world life, life expectancies by countries. Uh, here we see Japan is kind of high up there with 84. Uh, U.S. a little bit on the lower side amongst first world nations, but still pretty respectable at 79. And then here's just a general trend in the U.S. So we can see um, that we know females tend to live on average longer compared to males. And again, uh, for the U.S., the life expectancy is around 75 to 76 years old um, for people born at this time. Uh, and then can anyone just tell me why we see this decline starting like 2019, 2020? Yeah, COVID is the, of course, the big one. Uh, it's reported that possibly uh, three fourths to 80% of our decline uh, within these past three years is solely due to COVID. And so this is just an illustration of kind of the ads that we see in our media, uh, just to point out that you know, aging and life expectancy, it's a multi, multi-billion dollar, um, you know, market. It spans advertising, it spans health, it spans beauty products, it spans supplements, it spans food. Uh, it even has extended into our pets. Uh, so on the top left, we have an ad. Uh, and, you know, who wouldn't want their little lassie to live a longer life? Um, so, you know, just a couple of ads that we may see and then here we have uh, just an example. So right here we have Henry Ford uh, on the right side of your screen or your left, sorry. Uh, that's during his filming of The Last Crusade. So that's the 1980s. In the middle we have Henry Ford uh, just a couple of years ago when he was doing some press tours for The Crystal Skull. And then on that left side, we have a recent trailer from his newest Indiana Jones movie. 
Uh, and, you know, he looks a lot, lot different. He looks a lot younger. So what's the deal? Did uh, Indiana Jones find the fountain of youth? Uh, or does Henry Ford just have uh, access to things that us uh, normal people don't? Uh, really, the truth here is this is just some CGI de-aging. Um, you know, we're starting to see deep fakes, CGI. You know, they brought Michael back Jackson back as a hologram. And now we're starting to see a lot more de-aging in movies. We've seen them in Star Wars, now Indiana Jones. But wouldn't it be nice if we could just take a pill and go from the middle picture to that last picture? And so that's kind of where longevity medicine comes in. Uh, again, as a field, um, this has been around for some decades, but it's really starting to ramp up. Uh, it's really starting to come into the forefront, especially as we have an aging population and we're trying to live longer and healthier lives. Um, so we have a couple of uh, current uh, research and current uh, medicines and interventions that have been studied. Uh, the top one here is kind of the calorie trial. Uh, and this is looking at caloric restriction. Uh, it's also known as a comprehensive assessment of long-term effects of reducing intake of energy. And they studied basically a two-year period and found uh, correlations of just a 25% reduction of caloric uh, intake in extension of uh, subjective uh, quality of life. And this was just in 2021. They mainly looked at intermittent fasting and caloric restriction. Um, initially, they looked at just mice, yeast, and rhesus monkeys. But now, of course, they're trying to expand it to human populations. Um, if we remember to Dr. Sanchez's talks a couple of weeks ago, he talked about the Mediterranean diet. They're trying to do studies with that as well, combining caloric restriction with Mediterranean diets for a synergistic effect. Uh, of course, we know all the uh, benefits of physical exercise. Um, and then of course, lifestyle factors. And again, this isn't just limited to your smoking, your drinking, your sedentary lifestyle. It's also talking about loneliness, isolation, social life, having a good support system, decreasing stress levels, um, sleep duration and even uh, the circadian rhythm. You know, we know now from studies that night shifts uh, tend to shorten lifespan because of the disruption of our circadian rhythm. And then some medical interventions that we'll briefly touch on. Uh, big ones have been rapamycin, uh, typically used, you know, as an mTOR inhibitor, uh, used in transplant rejection medicine, used in uh, cancer medication. Um, and so now studies have started to look at rapamycin as a possible uh, anti-aging medicine due to its effects on mTOR inhibition. Uh, and the thoughts are that, you know, it reduces T cell and B cell activation by reducing or uh, reducing the effects of ILK uh, activation. Then we probably heard of resveratrol. Um, and this is when we say, you know, studies every two years come out, oh, wine is good for you, wine is not good for you. Is it or isn't? So, you know, the debate is still up on that, but looking at things such as wine, grapes, nuts, which are high in resveratrol and antioxidants. And then we also have a couple of studies looking at NAD, NAD plus in oxidation cycles. And the big one that we'll kind of look at today is metformin. Um, and so we'll get into that. And so here we just have a Nice picture, uh, it's the Fountain of Youth. Uh, I think it was like the 1500s by Lucas Cranach. Um, and so, you know, wouldn't it be just great if we just had one of these Fountain of Youths? You know, it's been 
in the old age uh, subject of many crusades, many uh, expeditions. So looking at metformin, uh, what is metformin? We're all familiar, even if you're not a primary care doctor, even if you're not working in the hospital, we've all learned this throughout medical school. It's like one of the most commonly prescribed drugs that we have now. Uh, just some general background, it's a biguanide derivative. All that means is looking at the backbone up there, it has an ammonia and the dicyanide backbone. Um, it's generic, it's cheap. Um, it was first uh, discovered in like the 1920s by a French physician. And then soon human studies begin in 1950. It was soon thereafter uh, approved for use in France and the US didn't ca catch up to it until 1995 where it became FDA approved. And now it's on the WHO list of essential medications. Um, again, it's generic, it's very cheap for a uh, prescription of 100 tablets. It's anywhere from 13 to 22 bucks. So it's very affordable. And of course, we now have a lot of studies that's proven its efficacy. Uh, you know, the ADA recommends it as one of the first line orals for type two diabetes. And we have a pretty good understanding of its mechanisms, uh, but there's still a couple that we haven't quite elucidated. So in general, you know, we know that it decreases the hepatic glucose production and increases sensitization to insulin. It acts as a modulator of the endocrine access. Uh, and then of course it has positive effects on insulin receptor expression, tyrosine kinase activity. Uh, we'll get into the activation of the AMPK pathway. And then it also increases in GLP-1 plasma levels. And so now there's some studies looking at it as a synergistic effect between metformin and GLP-1 agonists. And so we have a lot of effects of metformin. Uh, we have the anti-obesity effects. These will be such as decreasing appetite, again, increasing GLP-1 levels. We have the anti-hyperglycemic effects, such as decreased intestinal carb absorption, inhibition of the hepatic gluconeogenesis, and then increased activity of those GLUT4 transporters. We have the anti-lipidemic effects. Uh, this is looking at increased fatty oxidation. And then of course the anti-diabetic effects with the protection of the beta cells in the pancreas, both from glucose toxicity and increased proliferation. And it has hepatoprotective effects, sorry, uh, decreased hepatic insulin resistance. And then of course the cardioprotective effects that we see from the cumulative effects from the aforementioned um, side effects. And of course, decreased weight gain, better lipid profile, which we've all seen uh, to have a positive effect on cardiovascular outcomes. And then of course we have common side effects. Um, patients will often complain about a metallic taste. Big one is GI side effects. This can include anorexia, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal discomfort. And then of course B12 deficiency is a big one that we consider, especially with prolonged use. A couple of theories on that, decreased intestinal motility, decreased B12 absorption, uh, through downplaying of calcium ligand bindinin receptors on the intrinsic factor and also an alteration of the microbiota. And then we have some other uses. Uh, we, of course, see it in type 2 diabetes, but it's been used in PCOS. It's been used now, some studies, as an anti-cancer medication. And so here we're kind of just looking at the AMK, AMPK activation. Uh, so basically what we see here is that we have an increase in the intracellular AMP to ATP ratio by the inhibition of the complex one. 
So we basically have a reduction in proton uh, driven synthesis of ATP. And why this matters is because it results ultimately down there at the bottom in reduced glucose, protein, and lipid synthesis, and that increased fatty oxidation, fatty acid oxidation, and glucose uptake. So just some brief overviews. Um, the main thing that we've studied metformin is, is in animal models. Uh, we've had rat models, we've had uh, E. coli models. Now we have some uh, pretty good evidence in the C. elegans models. So that's this study right here uh, in the title here, metformin retards aging in C. elegans by altering microbial folate and methionine metabolism. And basically, uh, in summary, the study looked at various groups, uh, both C. elegans with and without co-culturing with E. coli and with and without uh, co-administration of metformin in various concentrations. And they found that uh, those C. elegans that were co-cultured with E. coli and given varying degrees of metformin concentrates had a longer lifespan. Um, so right here, we just have kind of a busy slide, uh, but we can see kind of in group B, when they're comparing the control groups uh, to the treatment groups, we have the OP50, uh, which is a control, and then the OP50MR uh, with the, the metformin uh, treatment arms that we're seeing that they had a total uh, decrease in folate. And then kind of going to graph D up there on the left, uh, this is looking at basically the increased lifespan uh, in a dose-dependent manner in those cell lines and those uh, cultures of C. elegans with metformin compared to those that did not. And so ultimately the study concluded that they think the effects of this is because the co-administration of metformin with E. coli actually decreased folate uh, um, bacterial folate uh, metabolism. And so they saw an increase in lifespan possibly due to the uh, basically decreased en energy expenditure of those C. elegans models. So those C. elegans with the E. coli given metformin had decreased metabolism levels, decreased folate um, and had a higher lifespan. And then we have the MILES study uh, initially posted in 2015 where the metformin and longevity study. Um, and this was really trying to see if we could see similar effects in humans. And so they kind of looked at 14 um, elderly subjects, 65 and plus with impaired glucose tolerance and they each served as their own control. So for about the first uh, six weeks they were given placebo metformin, uh, which was of course uh, nothing and they biopsied their skeletal muscle, their adipose tissue to see if there was a change in gene transcription. And after those six weeks of placebo, they found no significant difference. And so the second arm of the study was to administer them uh, about uh, 1,700 milligrams of metformin daily. And then again, at the end of six weeks, they took biopsies, adipose tissue, skeletal muscle, and they wanted to look, was there a change in gene transcription? So after those six weeks of the treatment arm, they actually found that there was a significance, about 650 genes in the muscle and 150 genes in the adipose tissue were altered 
both affecting metabolic and non-metabolic pathways. So basically what they found was that likely the administration of metformin is causing changes in DNA repair. And based on the known function of these genes that they sequence, they tried to extrapolate the data to say that this could suggest that there may be some anti-aging effects uh, because these genes were involved in metabolic pathways as well as some collagen gene expression. Um, and then again, in the adipose tissue, they found some changes uh, observed, including increased fatty acid oxidation, lipid metabolism, uh, kind of looking at the PPAR and SREBP signaling pathways. Uh, but again, we kind of already known these as a function of metformin's uh, mechanisms and actions. So just looking at the mild studies, um, of course, you know, the big thing is it's a human trial. We can try to, you know, extrapolate it to a general human population. Uh, it was a double-blinded study. Uh, the subjects were able to act as their own controls. Uh, but of course, it did have some limitations. You know, these were diabetic patients. They had impaired glucose control already at baseline. So we don't know how much that translates to the general population or just a healthy individual. And of course, it studied the gene transcription after the administration of metformin. So we administered the metformin. We were able to say it affected the genes, but we didn't look at mortality, morbidity. We just extrapolated the fact that these genes affect known metabolic pathways um, as a marker of possibly affecting mortality. And so that kind of leads us to our future studies. Um, the big one that's on the horizon is a TAME trial or the metformin as a tool to targeting aging. Um, this is kind of a uh, major trial that is planned. Uh, it's a double-blinded, placebo-controlled, multi-center trial. They're planning for 14 locations. They're planning to enroll about uh, 3,000 um, volunteers, ethnically diverse. And the big difference here is, of course, they're looking for non-diabetic subjects aged 65 to 79. And again, they're looking at the effects of metformin, again, due to its safety uh, profile and its low cost. And so some inclusion criteria that they're planning for is, again, they're looking for men and women. Um, they're looking to exclude, though, those patients that have serious chronic or acute illnesses. And they're also, uh, of course, excluding patients that are on any medications that may interact uh, glucose metabolism. Um, and then, of course, uh, they're screening patients for hypersensitivities to metformin or any uh, bigonide um, derivatives. And so the main thing that they're planning to do is the intervention is including uh, basically metformin daily at a dose of 1,500 milligrams for six years and then a follow-up period of about three to four years. And the outcomes that they're looking for are the development or progression of conditions leading to all-cause mortality. So they're looking at appearance of new age-related uh, chronic diseases. And another interesting aspect that they're planning for is looking at functional aging that we talked about before. So they'll measure these in a variety of ways. The main things that they've been considering is changes in mobility. So measured by gate speed over a distance of 10 meters. Uh, but they're also looking at, looking at uh, measures of cognitive impairment. So the main promise for, of course, the TAME trial as a bigger population size. And I think the more important fact is that they're looking at non-diabetics um, and the translation to the general population. Can we see these benefits that we've seen in animal models 
and diabetics also in healthy patients. Uh, but of course it does have some limitations. Um, it's just a short uh, follow-up period of three to four years. Uh, they'll be looking at the appearance of new diseases, but they won't be able to, I don't think encapsulate full range of mortality. And of course there's further study to be done uh, mainly identification of those biomarkers, kind of how is metformin exactly affecting mortality, morbidity? Is it only the indirect effects, so like we talked about, like anti-obesity, anti-diabetic, anti-lipid, or is there a more direct pathway, such as we see with rapamycin on cancer cells? And so that leaves uh, further room for study. So just in a conclusion, you know, again, metformin has a safe and uh, effective profile. It's been around for ages. It's generic, it's inexpensive, uh, very affordable with a good RX coupon. It can come down even to $10. We have a lot of supported literature for its benefits already known in you know, diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease. And now we're looking at its effects in cancer, dementia. Uh, but you know, the main thing is we still only have hard evidence in animal models regarding the benefits of life and health span uh, extension. And it still remains controversial if these are direct effects or indirect effects. So far, we've only seen indirect effects. And so we're unsure if that'll translate well directly to a human population. And the other um, main thing was, especially in that first study with the C. elegans, those uh, concentrations that they actually used in the C. elegans animal models were at pretty toxic doses. So about uh, 50 micromolar or above, whereas in humans, when we study the gut uh, concentrations of metformin, we see at most 20 micromolar. So, you know, there's still some tweaking to be done on that part. All in all, that's to say, um, you know, when we're thinking about longevity medicine, when we're looking for something such, such as a fountain of youth or that one medication that'll just uh, solve everything, you know, it's kind of caution and looking for a quick fix. Uh, you know, there's some promising research, there's some big studies on the horizon, but even if that's found, you know, don't forget the basics, you know, don't forget the exercising, stay away from the bad stuff, all the stuff that you tell your patients, avoid, you know, smoking, alcohol, avoid uh, sleep shift changes, especially night shift, um, all those things. And, you know, we still need to know more studies before we go out and start prescribing metformin to our patients. Um, and so I just wanted to kind of end with this quote here um, from a German poet, uh, you know, youth is happy because it has the capacity to see beauty, but anyone who keeps the ability to see beauty never gets old. So I just really like that quote. And then um, anyone know who this is? And it's not just a picture that I found when I Googled old people. Yeah, so I don't expect you to know who it is. Um, this is Bessie Hendricks. She actually passed away earlier this week. She was the oldest person in the US at that time at 115 years old, passed away peacefully in her nursing home in Iowa. And, uh, you know, when they asked her, like, uh, I think it was like three or four years ago, how, how do you stay so healthy so long? You know, she said, work hard, stay away from doctors, make sure to enjoy sweets, uh, like a piece of slice, a uh, piece of pie or a slice of birthday cake. Uh, so, you know, if metformin doesn't pan out, maybe you just eat some more cake. Um, and then here we have uh, opportunity for questions, discussion, and then uh, our survey links to the SurveyMonkey. 
Pie or cake sounds real good to me. <laughs> Thank you. Any questions in the audience? Hey, Dr. Tapa, thank you so much for the presentation. Question for you, um, since you've been looking at the Fountain of Youth, there's been a lot of information on Google about growth hormone as being the current studied idea of the Fountain of Youth. Did you come up uh, with or come across any studies on that? Uh, so yes, that's a good point. Thank you, Dr. Sigalo, for that. Um, yes, growth hormone has been studied, uh, not extensively by my literature review, um, and again, kind of the same problem with metformin. There's not really big uh, trials in human models uh, to really point at its efficacy as an anti-aging medicine. Interesting. Any other questions or thoughts? I don't see any online. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Thapa. Thank you.